Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown. And with the craziness of COVID-19, we are going to continue our discussion about how we can make practical changes in the workforce to take care of everybody. So we are grateful to have Forrest Richardson with us to talk a little bit deeper about COVID-19 in the workplace. Some of you may have listened to one of Forrest's previous episodes with us, but just as a reminder, he is a certified safety professional. He also has the Associate Risk Management Enterprise designation as well. So he's going to talk a little bit more, as Curtis said, about protecting the workforce during this COVID-19 pandemic. So as our resident OSHA expert and somebody who's spent a lot of time looking at companies and how they can be affected by safety in general, what should employers do currently to prevent COVID-19 as well as control it if it's in place currently? Sure. That's probably the first and foremost thing on everybody's mind. And typically in emergency situations and, and high, um, high stress situations, most people just want to know what do I need to do about it? Knowing why it happened comes later, but what we're recommending is put a little context to things because obviously trying to manage employee concerns is, is paramount to almost all employers or all employers concerns at the top of the list. How do we, how do we help them through this as well? We're recommending that people kind of put things in context in terms of exposure risk. And so when we have those concerns, we want to look through the lens of what's a very high exposure risk. What does that really look like? And OSHA has a great little PDF on their COVID page that talks about the risk pyramid. So for example, you know, when you're really looking at all the things that we're going to talk about here today is just what is a very high exposure risk? And that's really reserved for the healthcare and ward workers and people that are handling and collecting specimens of potentially infectious patients or people known, and that's the operative word, or suspected of having. So this is not the same as walking through the grocery store or just walking out in the warehouse doing your job. That, that doesn't really apply. The next lower level would be, you know, a high risk. And that's really reserved for healthcare delivery, support, medical transport personnel, and things like that. Again, working around people that are known to have or suspected of having COVID-19 at the time or at the time of death. So that really doesn't apply to most of us in the working environment. Where we most of us fall into is more like the medium exposure risk, where even the next lower down would be lower exposure. So the medium risk is just most people that work in the general public. That may be like your school teachers, places that have high population density work environments and retail settings, things like that. That would be kind of more medium which I think where most of us probably fit into. The last one is the lower exposure risk. And that's really, you know, your work at homes or people that don't really get around people. They're, they're kind of remote workers. So again, that puts it into context. And that, and that PDF on OSHA's COVID-19 page can be really helpful for leaders in, in trying to explain exactly kind of what the risks really are to the employees and training. So that would be my first recommendation. Put some context on the current events. There's no doubt everything that, that is going on needs to be respected. And the things that are being done at the national, regional, and local level are definitely required at this point. But when we look at what can we do in the workplace right here, and so we really 
under OSHA, when you're looking at the workplace, what do I need to do? We see a lot of folks using masks, which is definitely one of those advisable things under the right conditions, but it can lead to certain things. And so OSHA says, if you're going to put masks on your employees, that's considered PPE. And that's the least effective thing that you can do. They require employers to follow that pyramid of first elimination. And what does that really mean? Well, with COVID, that means social isolation, queuing of your people, keeping those physical distance and barriers, installing those where you need to. The next one would be engineering controls that you can do. And, and that's using, and you can do this at your home as well. And I've, I've actually implemented, you know, the high efficiency air filters. I open up my windows at home and run the air conditioner once or twice a day just to kind of change out the air for, you know, about 30, 45 minutes. It works really well in the Southern states, but not so well in Minnesota yet. Oh, yeah. I don't think you need to do We have natural air conditioning up here. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's another engineering control. It's just increasing ventilation rates. And without going too far down the technical rabbit hole, the easiest is what they call general dilution ventilation, which is just opening up a window or a bay door or installing a fan somewhere and keeping air moving so that these particles or potential particulate matters and aerosols that are potentially people may be breathing out or or, or forced to the ground or onto services where you can clean them up and, and implement your housekeeping. So, you know, increasing ventilation rates as best as possible. Again, the physical barriers that you're seeing out in the workplace and at the local stores with sneeze guards and partitions are always good. You know, those are some of your main ones for engineering. And again, OSHA requires us to follow that pyramid of elimination, engineering controls. And then once we've done everything that we can feasibly to that, then move down to administrative controls and safe work practices, which is what Dr. Ben Hoffman was talking a lot about on our last podcast. But specifically in the workplace, what we're seeing and and as a risk manager, you know, maybe establishing alternate days or shifts for essential personnel and leadership. And this is similar to what corporations do when they have to travel abroad and they have key leaders that they can't lose in the same plane or they're going to high risk areas. They might not allow them on the same plane or the same trip. So what we're seeing here locally in like warehouses is that the director of operations or the the general warehouse manager can't be in the same room together or on the same shift. They're separating their people. So if they lose one to this for the next eight to 14 days, their operations, there's always a key leader there that's involved in that. So that's definitely something that's recommended. Establishing communication plans and forms for employee questions, which most companies are doing, but involving your key or your mid-level managers and especially your line managers in that, they are the tip of the communication sphere. So have them implementing that and out there following up with those communication plans that are being put out by HR or by corporate leadership. Obviously, education and training on the risk factors, the signs and symptoms helps alleviate knowledge is power. Letting them know kind of, hey, here are what the signs and symptoms and here's how it's different from the flu. Obviously, encouraging respiratory etiquette, you know, covering your coughs and sneezes, discouraging the use of workers, offices and phones and equipment. So trying to do those kinds of things. And then PPE at the very last. It's it's the least effective, but it's a critical component of your program. And it's probably where I see a lot of potential for employers to maybe go down a road they don't want to go specifically with OSHA. So we can talk a little bit more about what the requirements on that, but all all PPE, regardless of what it is, must be selected based on a hazard to the worker. So we really want employers to think assessments. 
Look at the type of mask that you're giving them or going to allow them to do or mandate that they use and make sure there's no other obligations there when you do that. Make sure they're properly fitted, periodically refitted. So this is where your training comes in. Make sure they're worn consistently and properly. Make sure the way they're stored, they're not being damaged, especially if you have a lot of like N95 or the paper mask. There's a lot of cross-contamination potential out there of people thinking that, well, I have a mask, I'm protecting myself, I'm protecting others, but the way they're handling it and the way they're storing it may put them at increased risk. So your training and and education piece will help with that, letting them know exactly what it is that you want. Quick question on the masks. Now, what is the number one way for them to be damaged? Is it temperature-based? Is it just from crinkling them? Or what, what is the easiest way for people to avoid damaging those masks? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, they all have a certain useful life and shelf life. And, and this kind of ties into some of the formal policies and procedure considerations that employers may want to look at. You know, if they're crinkled or creased, if they're heavily soiled, employees go on breaks and they take them off. They might touch the inside of the mask while they're doing that. So they, they need to be trained to handle it from the straps and, and not touch. And then when they are storing it, even for a 15 minute break, they can put it in something as simple as a Ziploc bag so that it, it doesn't contaminate other surfaces and it doesn't get contaminated from the inside from anything that might be in the air. Regardless of COVID-19, this is a standard respiratory protection work practice for any type of respirator, no matter what it is. Now, if employers are really doing those kinds of things, we recommend that kind of the easy things like using Ziploc bags have people paint mark their name on that Ziploc bag so people know whose it is. Any recommendations that you have or OSHA even has put out regarding taking the temperatures of employees as they arrive at work? I haven't really seen anything specific to taking temperatures, but from what I understand of the process, there's a lot there that could be potentially beneficial, but like any testing protocol, you know, it has gaps. So if you're taking temperatures, Somebody comes on break, they go out in the parking lot, you know, South Texas, it's 105 degrees outside. They come back in, they get the temperature taken. Well, it's going to be elevated. So obviously there's more to the screening process, but the main thing is social distancing, keeping your people cued. You know, if you're going to set up like a, a temperature testing protocol, keeping people cued in line with CDC guidelines, making sure that your people that are doing it have the right PPE. So that's basic safety glasses or face shield. You could use that in combination with the two if you wanted to go that route. Safety gloves, you know, your nitrile gloves and a face mask or a surgical, more like a surgical mask. We can go into that a little bit later on the different types of masks because it, it's germane to what OSHA is talking about, what compliance requirements are for each one. Well, and I think that's a good point to bring up that by doing this step, I mean, I, I know it's been tossed around and I've heard it talked about taking the temperature, but it's not just taking the temperature. There's a lot of other things you got to consider that I think most people don't think about how prepared are the people? Are you keeping them six feet apart in line one person at a time and the person taking the temperature being properly suited for the task? It sounds like those are things that have to be considered on top of just taking the temperature. Sure. You know, cueing the personnel, making sure your people have the basic universal precautions that they're taking, obviously having cleaning and sanitizing, disinfecting protocols in place. And the CDC has great guidelines on that. And also think about disposal you know, disposal of the waste products that you're wiping down or the gloves, you know, making sure that that is contained in one general container, if you will, and then 
taken out at a certain time. And again, we can reference some of the different standards that employers can go to for help that may not be applicable from a standpoint of a citation, but they can use certain standards as a guideline for questions to consider. So we can go through that as well. Just a real quick aside on formal policies and procedure considerations. So as employers are looking at trying to make this response relative to things, they may want to look at formally looking at, you know, restricting the number of personnel entering or exiting isolation areas. I know that's more of a work practice control, but that could be a procedure that people may want to kind of in the interim make a formal type procedure on and provide that the, the main thing really is adequate, usable and appropriate training and education for what's going on with their job, the type of hygiene practices that's expected and the use of PPE. So those would be a couple of places that people can start. And it doesn't have to be war and peace. It can be a very simple, hey, this is how we want you to do this. Fit for Work is more than just an on-site care company. We also have ergonomic safety compliance and employee testing programs, all backed by certified professionals and experts in their fields that can reduce your company's injuries and costs, all while increasing your employees' well-being. And that is such an important thing, especially with times that we're living in today. Any way we can help to improve your employees, that's what we can be a part of. This is a turnkey program where we will start making a difference right away on day one. Please visit our website, wellworkforce.com, and click on Connect With Us to learn more. So with the nightly news talking about, you know, the face masks, and we've touched on it already, basically the new recommendation is that the public should always wear some form of covering not recommended for the general public to be the N95 level, but what can the workplaces provide for their employees that would be effective that they can get their hands on? That's kind of the, I think the balance that they're trying to face. What is something that they can provide all their employees, but still be useful and effective? Right. The main thing, again, is kind of dividing line between when we're allowing people or we're mandatorily saying you have to have a mask. That's one thing. Or is this more of a voluntary type of a thing? When you're looking at OSHA respiratory protection guidelines, that's the place to start. Because if you make it mandatory, that would be the first question to ask. You know, is this mandatory decision or purely voluntary? The second question you ask, and I'll go through each one of these, but what types of masks are employees wearing? So obviously N95, the type of dust mask respirator, the two-strap N95 respirators are considered respirators by OSHA, and then that kind of kicks in medical evaluation and training requirements. If you're using them voluntary and you want to put them in N95 respirators, well, then you just need to do the training piece of that and make sure that you have them signed. There's an appendix in the respiratory protection standard. You can have them signed, saying that they understand how to use it. You've got covered the basics. It's a lot simpler measure. So the main thing I would say is where you don't need to make mandatory or authorize or voluntarily use, stay away from the N95 two-strap respirators because they kick in a lot of other compliance things. So going to like a surgical mask would be more advantageous and probably just meet their need for most of us in a medium class risk hazard. The other question I would ask is, has the employer actually looked through the hierarchy of safety controls that we just mentioned? Have they done everything they can to eliminate increased ventilation rates? We got the social distancing, we got the queuing, we got the barriers, the guards, whatever. Have we done all that first? Because it's easy just to throw PPE because it's cheap and it's obviously really quick to do. 
but it's definitely backwards and, and opens up employers to potential risk from citations or even litigation issues if it goes that far. And then the last question I usually ask is, if employees are required to wear face masks by company policy or by practice, and by practice, I mean, you're just allowing them, hey, if you want to, that's like a voluntary thing by practice. So you can use it if you want. Make sure that they're training their employees on that and make sure that if they're allowing people to wear bandanas or some of the other less effective means, make sure that they're letting their folks know about the limitations to that, that those aren't PPE. And they don't filter like a regular surgical mask would. And just make sure that they're aware of it. And that's where the training and the education piece comes. And CDC has great guidance on that. OSHA's COVID webpage has great guidance on that for leaders to just take a dive through. So those are the four main compliance questions. Are they mandatory or voluntary? What types of masks are we allowing our people to wear? And if they are, you know, by policy or practice, are we making sure that they're trained and educated? Forrest, you just talked a little bit about looking to OSHA and looking to the CDC for guidance. Do you have any of those just main standards available to just tell our listeners about so that so that they can know what to look for when they're looking on, on the website or just have those available for them? Sure, sure. You know, while there's no specific OSHA standard covering SARS-CoV-2 or the COVID-19, OSHA requirements that may apply that you can use is obviously is the personal protective equipment general industry standard, uh, the general requirements for gloves, face, and respiratory protection. That's a great place to to start to get kind of tuned up on what do we need to do for this. That's where you're going to find your hazard assessment requirement. OSHA's general duty clause or their section 5A1, what they call, uh, generally that's kind of what they use if there's not a hazard a uh, regulation for something they see or are made aware of, typically through employee complaints these days. And then the bloodborne pathogen standard, while it's not really citable from a standpoint of COVID-19, it does provide a lot of really good information about work practice controls and exposure prevention. How do you do that? So there's some really good resources there. And, and there's there's a few more out there as well. So what is OSHA's current guidance on personal protection of equipment for all industries and healthcare workers? There's a couple of things that, that, that has come out recently in terms of memorandums, and, and they weighed in on the extended use of N95 respirators, primarily in the healthcare industry because of the supply demands and the limitations of people getting what they need. So they have authorized the use, uh, extended use or reuse of N95s, but they they definitely don't recommend that the healthcare uh, personnel who are potentially exposed to employee open wounds using reused N95s. And they refer back to a CDC trial study that they did on how long certain brands of respirators will last and if there's any failure rate. So the CDC's COVID page has links. And, I, and I'm almost, I believe OSHA's COVID page in the resource tab has links to that study as well. And they, they basically give you a list of, hey, here are the NIOSH-approved respirators that held up and, and are recommended for that type of a setting. So that would be kind of one of the things for healthcare workers in the use of N95s to be aware of. They still have to do the user seal checks and they still have to do the training and all that other stuff. If they are wearing an N95 respirator as a function of their job, that would be they're in the very high or the high category risk that we recently talked about then everything OSHA says in respiratory protection in terms of having the program, having the, the site-specific procedures, 
and the training and the medical fit testing and all that other medically valid fit testing applies. So if they have to wear an N95 respirator for their job, then all of those other programmatic things come into play, which is why we want to be very sensitive to what we're allowing our employees to wear. And this goes on regardless of COVID. We see employers allowing employees to go to Home Depot and pick up a cartridge respirator and just wear it. So we want to be mindful of that. The other part of it is uh, using expired N95. So OSHA has weighed in and said, hey, due to the, the current demand, the compliance safety and health officials, which are OSHA's term for their inspectors, are directed to exercise you know, discretion in the use of filtering face respirators like N95 respirators beyond the manufacturer's recommended shelf life. So they're going to take that on a case-by-case basis. But they want to make sure that employers are only using NIOSH-certified expired N95 respirators. And you can find that link on CDC page for the coronavirus as well. There's a stockpiled list that they've tested and said that, hey, all of these manufacturer models are good, even if they are outside of their date. So the other thing would, that they're expecting is that if you have a stockpile of these N95 respirators and they're out of date, keep the out of date ones separate from the ones that are within their service life. So that's another expectation that they would be looking for. Would it be encouraged that employers use the expired ones first uh, just as a means of putting them to use? Or is it they can only use them after they've gone through those that are still not expired? That's really kind of a judgment call from an inventory management. I mean, you, you could, you know, you kind of gain something with going one way versus the other, you know, depending on what you, what you want to do. But specifically for healthcare employees, expired N95s generally must not be used, especially when they're doing surgical procedures, obviously, with known or infected patients or those with in areas that where the respiratory secretions are poorly controlled. And we're talking about doing intubation, extubation, bronchoscopy, nebulizer therapy, sputum induction, things like that is where they don't want them using expired respirators. So that's a great question when you're talking about when should I use them. And so they would be expecting employers that have that to make sure that they're managing their inventory, make sure the first thing is that they're within their service life. And if they're not, Knowing that for the healthcare industry, you don't really want to use those expired ones when you're doing some of those other serious procedures. Now, for the rest of the workplace, using one that's expired is fine as well, but you would want to follow that same kind of guidance. Identify them and keep them separate and then use what you need to. Forrest, you have been a wealth of knowledge and just a resource for all of us at Fit for Work. What other resources are available for employers to help kind of manage this current situation? I would say the first and foremost one for employers would just be stay tuned into OSHA's COVID-19 webpage. And when you pull up that page, if you look on the left-hand toolbar, that's where you're going to have kind of all the summary information, the background and resources that we've talked about here today. It will be there as well. And that will help them with, number one, understanding what it is that they, what's going on and what to do about it or what can they do because you can't really focus on what you can't do anything about, obviously. So that will go a long way to helping them educate their key and line managers as well on how to handle things. You know, what are the signs and symptoms? What do we really need to do about that high-risk category thing, which is a very, very important thing to do when you're talking about engaging your employees. Make sure they understand if you're in a general warehouse or a general setting where you're not a high-density population work environment, hey, look, you are not at high risk. You're not a very high risk. You're more medium and low risk. So put some context to that discussion and help educate them to help alleviate those fears. 
The other one would be interim guidance for employers on CDC's coronavirus page. So that has a whole business and employers plan on how to respond to it. Cal OSHA even has an aerosol transmittable disease standard. It may not apply to other states, but it's got a great framework that companies can look at on Cal OSHA's webpage to kind of see what they're doing about it. Because it's really the ADT standard for them. It's really the same thing. We're trying to prevent bacteria and viruses. And obviously, OSHA has a respiratory protection e-tool, which provides a lot of basic information on respirators, medical requirements, the maintenance, care, and fit, and testing, voluntary use of respirators that we talked about. That's, you know, and even for training as well. So that would be a great resource for employers to take a look at if they have to go to respirators as to what their compliance requirements are. Well, I think from just the perspective and all these great things you brought up, there's a lot of information to process, but know that the the resources are out there and available, that they can reach out to you, that there is very practical tips that employers can face. Doing nothing is not a good option, but (laughs) there's a lot of things they can do and making sure that they're doing it right. And it sounds like that can reduce a lot of the fears. Thank you so much, Forrest. It's uh, always a great pleasure to get your insights on these things. You too. I appreciate the time. I really enjoy talking with Forrest because he just provides so many clear, confident answers that makes you feel like there are solutions. Whereas a lot of the times with thinking of steps you have to make, it can feel so overwhelming, but he does a good job of letting you know there's clear things to do. I think he did a great job of pointing out how important education is and letting employees know, even just letting them know what type of level of risk that they're at and putting them in perspective of, okay, you're not at the severe risk that this coming to work is a moderate risk and educating them, well, what can you do? And this is what we're doing as a company can do so much for employees to bring down their fears and make it a a lot better experience for them. Really appreciated his insights on that. Yeah, definitely. And it kind of goes back to also, you know, if a company is going to start requiring masks or is thinking about requiring masks or instilling a a temperature taking station as, as employees are coming into work, those are their ideas. Great. But educate yourself about them. You know, come up with a full plan. Do you have the proper personnel taking the temperatures? Are they protected themselves? What are you doing with the line that forms? You know, having to think through that whole process, making sure people are wearing the right masks for the job type that they're doing. And you touched on a little bit there, Curtis, in your review too, just that pyramid of risk and making sure that the measures that you take are appropriate to the pyramid of risk and always going back to the education part and just there, things are changing week by week, day by day. And so having those resources of the CDC, of OSHA to fall back on to keep us ourselves updated, and then we can better educate our employees regarding all of the changes and all of this information that's coming out. Yeah, for sure. Because things are changing, but it seems like they're stabilizing a little. Hope that they will continue to do so. Now, just so the audience knows, we do have other episodes that we have recorded already, but we will, you know, we just felt that this COVID-19 is something that we needed to address. We've been having a lot of these special guests and we will continue to provide you the best information we can and how it can help you and your workforce. So thank you for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe. 
wherever you listen. And to get started preventing injuries, please visit our website at wellworkforce.com or email us with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives. 